from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, this is Ben Terrace coming from The Washington Post. Hi, Jeff. Miss Winfrey, Oprah. Hi there. How are you? It's Lisa Bonas calling for The Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Thursday, July 1st. Today, a shifting Supreme Court on voting rights and beyond, plus the looming legal threat to Trump's family business. So today, the Supreme Court ruled on a case involving two laws in the state of Arizona, and that decision reversed a lower court, appeals court ruling that these two laws violated the Voting Rights Act. Amy Gardner covers voting issues for The Post. Today's ruling is really important. It effectively undermines Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, which is a really important section that prohibits racial discrimination in voting administration. And by deeming that these two laws in Arizona don't discriminate on the basis of race or skin color, the Supreme Court is in some ways enabling state legislatures around the country to continue passing these kinds of voting restrictions that both the dissenting justices on the Supreme Court and lots of voting rights activists and Democrats around the country have been sort of railing against for months and months and months this year as Republican-controlled state legislatures have passed and considered hundreds upon hundreds of such voting restrictions. So tell me a little bit more about these two laws in Arizona and what they do. So the first law limits who can collect absentee ballots from voters. You have to be a family member or caregiver. You can't just be a political operative or campaign person. And the second law restricts voting outside of your assigned precinct. If you vote in the precinct that you're not assigned to, your vote is discounted under Arizona law. And the Supreme Court ruled that neither of these laws discriminates on the basis of race or skin color. And so this was a 6-3 ruling, obviously, with the more conservative part of the court ruling in the majority. Can you talk through a little bit about why they felt that these laws should be able to stand? They interpreted the Voting Rights Act, Section 2, in a very narrow way. They discounted the principle that if a law has a disparate impact on people of color, that it violates the VRA. And that is very concerning to voting rights activists and to the dissenting three liberal justices because the idea that a law that is sort of facially not discriminatory or is stated to be for the purpose of preventing voter fraud should not prevent courts from finding discriminatory impact if a law disproportionately affects people of color. In the case of the laws in Arizona, legislators said that they were passing them to prevent fraud, for instance. That was the case with the absentee ballot collection law. The problem with that is that there isn't any evidence that widespread fraud occurs in our elections, despite 
all of these legions of bills that are being considered this year in the name of preventing fraud. But the but the Supreme Court majority opinion today basically gave legislatures latitude to do that. So the fact that it now looks like a majority of the court thinks that it is not their place to get involved in trying to reverse some of these types of laws, how will that embolden similar restrictions on voting in other states around the country in the future? Well, I think that it's hard to imagine the state legislatures being more emboldened than they already are to consider and approve these voting restrictions that are being passed around the country. Stricter voter ID laws, restrictions of how to vote by mail, restrictions on how many early voting hours there are. We've written about this all year, and we've talked about it on this show before, hundreds of these laws being considered and approved this year. I think Maybe the better question is, how does this ruling make it harder to enforce the Voting Rights Act and make it harder to prevent laws that have a racially discriminatory effect from being struck down? And so does this ruling today basically make a large part of the Voting Rights Act essentially dead? No, I don't think that this ruling sort of completely neutralizes Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. But right now, for instance, the Department of Justice is suing Georgia over its new voting law, claiming disparate impact. And we don't know for sure, but it seems pretty clear that it's going to be difficult for the Department of Justice to persuade the federal judiciary that that new law is discriminatory. And it's interesting because the Voting Rights Act Section 2 has some interesting language in it, which says that not only must voting be equally open to all voters, irrespective of race or skin color, but also that there must be equal opportunity. And those are two different things, right? And that's where the example of like the hours of voting registration is a great example. If you only allow voter registration to occur during three hours of the day, that seems like it's a universally applied rule on its face, facially. But we know that minorities disproportionately work jobs in which they have less flexibility to leave their jobs, working during the day, working particular hours. And so we know that that kind of law, depending on when those hours are, could have a disparate impact on people of color. And in his opinion, Justice Alito actually discounted the idea of equal opportunity and said that the real pillar of Section 2 is that voting laws and procedures be equally open. And that that's a pretty dramatic interpretation of the Voting Rights Act that the dissenting minority said was effectively legislating from the bench and overly interpreting and misinterpreting the text of the Voting Rights Act. And so that means the Justice Department is going to have to show not just that the new law in Georgia has a disparate impact on people of color, but they're going to have to show that voting is not equally open to all voters in Georgia, because that's the thing that this ruling today emphasized. Amy Gardner reports on voting for The Post. This story was produced by Sabby Robinson.
Voting rights was only one of several major Supreme Court decisions released in the past few weeks. And those decisions offer a larger picture of the state of the court and its future. I think the big takeaway is that this court tried to find a way to sometimes paper over its differences and to present a unified front. A number of cases were unanimous, which is not really as unusual as you might think. Robert Barnes covers the Supreme Court for The Post. But sometimes the court will decide a case very narrowly in order to get everyone on board and leave some tough issues for later. And I think that is what we saw with the court this year. Looking back at this term, the Affordable Care Act was a question that was on so many people's minds, like how the Supreme Court was going to rule and whether there could be threats to this major law in our country. What was the outcome of that decision and what does it change? Well, it doesn't change anything. It leaves the Affordable Care Act standing just as the two previous challenges at the Supreme Court has done. It's three strikes now, and the Affordable Care Act has survived every one of them. And this was a claim that, frankly, a lot of lawyers didn't think much of. It was a challenge from the Republican-led states and endorsed by the Trump administration. And It said that because Congress had zeroed out the penalty for not getting insurance, the so-called individual mandate, that that meant that the premise of the law, that this was a tax, was no longer good. The court ruled seven to two the case that the law would stand. They disposed of it in a way that drew even the support of Clarence Thomas, who has been one of the critics of the ACA. He said that this simply wasn't a lawsuit that could go forward. And it sounds like you weren't particularly surprised by this decision or that there were a lot of questions about the the real validity of this argument. But I'm wondering more long-term, it seems like questions about the ACA keep coming before the court and the ACA continues to win. So... Does this mark the end of these attempts to try to dismantle the Affordable Care Act through the Supreme Court? There are other lawsuits that are out there on various parts of the law, and some of those might be successful. But I think that the idea that there's something out there that is going to take down the entire Affordable Care Act, it sort of feels like those days are over. And that the Supreme Court has decided that. Certainly, it can be changed legislatively or a future Congress could get rid of it. But it feels like those legal battles to just wipe this off the book are just not going to be successful at the Supreme Court. There was also a notable case on transgender rights. Can you talk through that and what the decision of the court was? Yeah, well, it wasn't uh, so much a decision as it was the court saying it's not going to get involved right now. The way things happen at the Supreme Court is it reviews lower court decisions. And the lower court decision in this case was about Gavin Grimm, a transgender boy who was barred from using the boys' restroom at his high school in Virginia. The U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit said that the school board could not do that that it was discrimination. And so the school board appealed the case to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court said, 
we're not going to take it. We're not going to review this decision. And so that means that it leaves that decision in effect. And it was a big victory for transgender rights, but it only applies in those states covered by the Fourth Circuit, Virginia, Maryland, the Carolinas. And that sort of leaves the question out there for the rest of the country. But it's a signal that it's not the kind of issue that the court is ready to accept right now. So what are the kinds of issues that we saw the court making decisions on that would seem like a win for conservatives, where conservative viewpoints or conservative beliefs were upheld? I think that the big issue that conservatives will be happy about is the way this court looks at issues involving religious liberty and whether churches and uh, religious organizations have a sort of special constitutional protection. This is an area where I think we've seen a real change because of new Justice Amy Coney Barrett. Take COVID, for instance. When Justice Ginsburg was still on the court, there was a slim majority joined by Chief Justice Roberts that was very deferential to local officials about their COVID restrictions, even if they involved things such as worship limits and indoor worship services. That changed after Justice Ginsburg's death and with Judge Justice Barrett joining the court. It was a five to four decision going the other way where it ruled in favor of religious organizations who were challenging these and saying that there is a special consideration that has to be made for religious organizations in these kinds of restrictions. I think you saw the same thing in a case involving Catholic Charities and the city of Philadelphia. Catholic Charities have provided some foster care services for the city. That is, that they vet couples who want to be foster parents, and they refused to work with same-sex couples, saying that it violated their religious beliefs. Philadelphia wanted to cut off the contract with them because Philadelphia said, We have an anti-discrimination law that protects same-sex individuals and couples. And the court ruled for the Catholic agency. It said that because there are exceptions that Philadelphia could make, that this church group deserved one. And it was a nine-to-nothing vote. I think that the liberals went along with this because it was sort of the best that they could hope for from their colleagues, and it sort of puts off for another day the real showdown over whether anti-discrimination laws have to give way to religious views. You mentioned Amy Coney Barrett, and I think many people have had questions going into this round of decisions about what role she plays on the court, how conservative she really is. What are the answers to that question based on the decisions that we've seen come out in the past few weeks? Well, the first thing that we have to remember is that it is very hard to judge a justice by her first year on the court. It really takes some time, both because the justice is settling in and also that some issues simply aren't there in the first term that would give clues as to what the justice is going to be like. But that said, she has sided more with the more moderate conservatives, such as Chief Justice Roberts and 
Justice Brett Kavanaugh, the three of them have voted together. And so I think what we have seen is that there are certain issues that she's been important in and she will be important in. But the sort of, in general, the idea of a 6-3 conservative majority that was just going to sort of run roughshod over the liberals, we just haven't seen that this term. What are some of the other things that have surprised you more largely about how the court has been ruling in these past few weeks? A number of cases that they had taken involved Trump administration policies that the Biden administration changed. And so those cases were thrown out. And as a result, we have sort of fewer decisions from the court than at any time, I think, since the Civil War. Next year, the court has already accepted two extremely controversial issues, one on gun rights, one on abortion restrictions. It seems likely that it might add a case on affirmative action. And so if you've got a term that involves guns, abortion, and race, that could be a pretty explosive term. And when we think about what those future decisions could look like, I was really interested in what you were saying about these fears that that liberals have had about a 6-3 court running roughshod and basically ignoring the more liberal justices. And you said that that didn't quite seem to be the case. So I'm wondering what is the landscape in terms of, like, how would you divide up the court if you were thinking through where these justices seem to be at ideologically? It's in a way, it's sort of a 3-3 and 3 court. At least it was this term. That is, we have three justices who obviously are liberals, Stephen Breyer, Sonia Sotomayor, and Elena Kagan. And we have three seem pretty consistently conservative. Obviously, they can surprise once in a while, but on the other end of the court, you would put Clarence Thomas and Samuel Alito and Neil Gorsuch. And then there's sort of a middle with Barrett and Kavanaugh and Roberts. And they can sort of move the law, the court, in a way they want to because the liberals will go along with them for narrow readings of issues and to sort of slow down the process a little bit. And so the three of them, I think, have been quite influential this term. But again, we haven't had some of the hugely controversial ideological battles that we sometimes do. Robert Barnes covers the Supreme Court for The Post. This story was produced by Ariel Plotnick. Hey there, I'm Dr. Maya Shunker, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything, that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these moments. Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So, David, tell me what happened this morning. This morning, Alan Weisselberg, who is the longtime chief financial officer of the Trump Organization, turned himself in at the Manhattan District Attorney's Office in Lower Manhattan. 
David Farenthold covers the Trump Organization for The Post. Right now it's about 10 a.m. here in Manhattan. Weisselberg turned himself in at about 6.20 in the morning. He's in the DA's office right now. We know that Alan Weisselberg, along with the company, the Trump Organization itself, was indicted yesterday uh, by a grand jury in Manhattan. And we know that the charges they were indicted on relate in some way to taxes, allegedly unpaid taxes on benefits paid to Trump Organization executives. But we're still waiting on some new developments. This afternoon, about 2.15, Weisselberg and the Trump Organization are expected to be arraigned and the charges against them will be released. So we'll see more details then. So how significant is this development and what does it mean for the rest of the Trump Organization? Well, it's an extremely significant development for the Trump Organization in that the, the company itself has never been indicted. Its CFO, Alan Weisberg has never been indicted. This is the first result of a two-plus-year investigation of the Trump Organization by the Manhattan DA and the New York Attorney General. So the, it, it, you shouldn't undersell that. The fact that the company itself is under indictment is, could be really significant. It could hurt its public image. It could hurt its ability to deal with lenders and, and vendors and government contracts. In terms of The overall goal, though, I think of this investigation has been to bring charges against Donald Trump. And we're not there. And I think what we'll see today is how far along the road to there the prosecutors are. To get Trump, to charge Trump and convict him, they're going to need somebody, most likely on the inside of the company, to tell them what Trump was doing. To say, you know, when this we did this thing that you think is illegal, we did it because Trump told us to do it. He knew it was wrong and told us to do it anyway. There aren't that many people in this company who have that kind of access to Trump. It's a very small company. Weisselberg is one of the few, and he would certainly be the best witness for prosecutors if he would cooperate with them. And I think what we'll see today is... How much leverage do prosecutors have over Alan Weisselberg? Is it like the Michael Cohen situation in 2018, where Cohen was facing more than 10 years in prison before he decided to flip on Trump? Or is it something where Weisselberg might say, you know, I can deal with this. I'm not going to flip. Interesting. So so the question here or the theory is that potentially this indictment is part of building that case against Trump. I think that's right. I don't think you should look at today's indictments as the the end product of these investigations of Trump. I don't think you'll look, you know, I'm sure Trump will try to portray it that way. You know, look at this. They've investigated me for two years. This is all they have. I think the way to see it is as sort of the beginning of their legal strategy, which I do think revolves around finding an insider like Weisselberg. And so this is in some ways is not the end of the investigation. It's the start, because if they were ever going to get Trump, they'll need to get Weisselberg. And we'll see today how vulnerable Weisselberg is. So if there's Democrats out there hoping that Donald Trump's going to be, you know, I've seen people saying, oh, he's going to be in jail by this time next year or whatever. There are so many unknowns now about this case that I don't think anybody should presume even that Trump will be indicted. There's a lot we have to learn. And I think even the prosecutor may not know if they're going to be able to indict Trump. And tell me more about who Weisselberg is and his role in the Trump organization and what we know about him. Weisselberg is, uh, he has been with the Trump Organization effectively his entire career, starting in the 1970s. He worked for Donald Trump's father and then for for, uh, Donald Trump once he broke off and started his own company. Uh, He is the chief financial officer, which is a a pretty impressive title to begin with, but his role is really more than that. From people we've talked to, He's almost more the CEO of the Trump Organization, with Donald Trump as kind of like a chairman of the board figure or Mm. chief marketing officer. Trump makes some very high-level decisions, but in terms of who runs the company day-to-day, who decides what it spends money on, who gets fired and hired, a lot of that is done by Weisselberg. I mean, just to give you a sense of how 
granular his control over the company is. He, Weiselberg once said, said in a deposition that he gets involved even in the purchases of office supplies by Trump's subsidiaries. You know, if he sees that they're paying too much for pens, he'll seek out and say, hey, look, you've got to call our pen guy and get a, de- get a discount. <laughs> so he sees almost every dollar that comes in and out of that company and has for 30 plus years. Hmm. And so if the sense is that these charges are related to unpaid taxes, like what do we know about the scope of those unpaid taxes? How much money are we talking about? Like, do we know anything more about what Weisselberg potentially did wrong? We don't know the full scope of it or how much money, you know, the, the amount of money that would be quote unquote stolen here would be the amount of money that should have been paid in taxes and was not. So if it's, you know, if you think they got $5 million worth of benefits, the, the, the amount of money taken is not $5 million, it's whatever the tax payments should have been on that. I think we'll see things like free apartments and free cars given to Trump executives, maybe things like tuitions paid for children of Trump executives. All of which are things that they should have paid taxes on and didn't, is the sense. That will be the allegation, is, is that like, this is, you know, giving somebody a free apartment in Manhattan would be the equivalent of saying, hey, your compensation is $400,000 a year, but we're only going to pay taxes on the first 300000 You know, I think that that's the equivalent is that they're, they're going to, the prosecutors are going to say, well, this looks like oh, just a fringe benefit. That doesn't sound so impressive. But these benefits are so valuable that it's effectively like paying your executives partially off the books. And thinking past what we're hoping to find out later today, what are you looking for going forward in this case? What are your what are your big questions? Well, there's a bunch of unresolved questions that the prosecutors, investigators from the attorney general of New York's office and the DA's office have raised in past filings that don't seem like they're going to be addressed today. There were questions raised about whether Trump broke the law when he uh, when Michael Cohen paid off Stormy Daniels in the last days of the 2016 campaign. Cohen pled guilty to that and went to federal prison for it and and said at the time that he did it at Trump's behest. Will there be any consequences for Trump as a result of that? Or for Weisselberg, because Weisselberg handled some of the reimbursement uh, for Cohen. There's also been questions about whether Trump lied to lenders or taxing authorities about multi-million dollar tax breaks uh, that he got on properties in New York and California for conservation easements, whether he paid the proper taxes on $102 million worth of a forgiven loan. Really big, mysterious issues that the attorney general brought up as unresolved last August that don't seem like they're going to be addressed today. And I don't know if that's because the Trump organization has found a way to explain to prosecutors that they didn't break the law or if the DA and the AG are saving that for later. So you said that this could be part of building a larger criminal case against against former President Trump. But I also wonder what the effect of this will be on Trump and his family and the rest of the Trump organization from like a PR standpoint or even a political standpoint. The impact of that is a little hard to play out now when we haven't seen the charges. I think Trump and his family will sell this as a win for them. They'll say, look, they looked at, you know, they investigated us for so many years and they only came up with this piddly stuff. This just shows you know, how clean we are and how determined the Democrats are to get us. You know, they will they will sell this these charges, which, I, as I said, I think are the beginning of the case as sort of the end and say, you know, they aren't that impressive and hope for a political benefit out of that. 
Business-wise, though, the Trump Organization is already under a whole lot of stress. Uh, you know, they've lost a lot of customers because of Trump's politics. They lost a lot of properties that took down the Trump name. Last year, like everybody else in the hotel business, they got hammered by COVID and, and saw huge drops in revenue. So they're already not in a good place. And if there's an effect of this indictment, and it, you know, a PR hit or just like a lenders or vendors not wanting to do business with an indicted company, it could be a lot of pressure on them, you know, at a time when they really don't need it. David Farenthold covers the Trump family and its business interests for The Post. This story was produced by Corey Suzuki. On Thursday afternoon, the charges in this case were unsealed. Prosecutors charged the Trump Organization with a 15-year scheme to defraud the government. Weisselberg was charged with grand larceny and tax fraud. In total, prosecutors filed 15 criminal charges against Weisselberg, who pleaded not guilty. An attorney for the Trump Organization also pleaded not guilty on behalf of the company. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was mixed by Ted Muldoon. Catch up on recent episodes of the podcast by going to our episode archive at postreports.com. That is also where you can sign up to get an email every weekday afternoon when a new episode drops. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. 